Welcome to YCT Matters, a Yankee Institute's podcast. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and we're delighted to have with us today Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. Uh, He writes about the intersection of business, public policy, and politics and how the issues affect the people of Connecticut. Dan, that's a very, very weighty responsibility. It sounded good when I wrote it four years ago. I think it's still true to some extent. Uh, I hope it's still true. Well, we'll be the judge of that. Okay. What is your favorite part of your job? My favorite part of my job is talking to people. And unfortunately, I do too much talking to people and I have to rush through the writing part of it. I like writing. I really do. Writing is something I've always done. I was a photographer for years Uh, before I was a writer, but even then I was writing. So I like writing, but I like more talking with people. I just like talking on and on. And I find that the best stuff comes in the last 15 minutes of an hour-long conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, but so you started out, you were mentioning as a photographer, and uh, there was something I actually saw as I was uh, kind of looking, we've known each other for a while, but, you know, getting ready for this, I was looking over your bio. And uh, I was entertained to see that as a photographer, you almost ended Larry Bird's career with an arrow monopod. Like, what's the story with that? What the story is, is I was covering the game, game three of, I believe, the 1987 Celtics Lakers final. That was with the great uh, Magic and and Bird matchup and all the other Hall of Famers that were, that were there, which are numerous. And like the rest of the photographers, I was working for the Hartford Current right. as a photographer. And that was the heyday of journalism. We probably had two photographers at that game alone and, and a picture editor on the road and all that stuff. So when you shoot basketball, you have a relatively short lens. In those days, we didn't have the zooms that they have now. Right, We just had a fixed focal length lens, which means that you pick it up, and if it's too close up, you lose. You're out of luck. Or if it's too far away, you're out of luck. You just have to pick up the right lens. And so you would typically shoot with maybe three, maybe two cameras. And one would be about a 135, which is sort of a medium telephoto, short telephoto. And the other would be a real long lens, okay. 300 millimeter lens for the game, for the action on the other side of the court. All right. And you would have a monopod, which is like a tripod, except it's only one leg, so it's called a monopod. Right? And the camera would be on a monopod. And it was a big camera in those days. It still is. And you'd have the apparatus right at your feet. Typically, the photographers would be about three feet back from the line. And I was on the sideline at the time. As a matter of fact, I was sitting in front of Johnny Most. So I got to hear him. You remember the great Johnny Most? with a round bird to DJ bag. He was the great announcer in the 70s and 80s for the Celtics. And very colorful. And I was sitting in front of him. I remember that. And I was about three feet back from the sideline, and Larry Bird went to take out a ball. And see, you and I, when we step next to a line, we're about a foot away from the line. Not Larry Bird. He's 6'11", 6'10", big guy. He steps all the way back and momentarily tripped on my monopod. He stepped on the monopod and momentarily, now because Larry Bird is probably one of the top, you know, let's say 10 athletes of all time, he didn't have a problem and he quickly righted his foot, right? If you and I did that, we would have sprained an ankle. Right. And if you and I sprained an ankle, it wouldn't have mattered. Nobody would have cared. If Larry Bird had sprained an ankle in the game three of the 1987 NBA Finals, I would be a household name today, like that guy in Chicago. (laughs) Well, you're kind of a household name in a lot of parts of Connecticut. Maybe for a different reason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say, but you beat me to it. So so you moved on, and you had been at the Hartford Current for a lot of years. I was. And you covered business. 
I did. And you have written op-eds. But now at Hearst, you put out a column. And where do you get your column ideas? I mean, how do you actually go about doing research for this? You go around and talk to people, and then you just settle on an idea, go home to your – what is your creative process I just like? got one on the way in from Ken, your, your policy yeah. guy, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, Ken is a font of information right. and ideas. It, while we were walking in, we were talking about the – issue of the day now, which is right. the CBAC contract. And I'm writing about it and he's writing about it. And you're thinking about it and talking about it. And ideas come out of that. Right. Right. So something he said gave me an idea for a column, which I had vaguely had on my mental list, but not on a written list. I have about 50 written lists. Right. And maybe 300 mental lists. And they all come together. Right. So the short answer is there are always ideas out there and they come from conversations with people, and that particular one is an issue where I take the more conservative side of the issue. And so I look for those because sometimes I'm not on the conservative side. And so, really? So I'm shocked to hear this, right. Dan. So, it, But in that case, it's an issue where uh, it, it has to do with pay for state employees and when they're getting certain pay. Uh, we don't need to go into it as an issue right now, but I, I am on the side of the conservatives in this particular issue. So I make a mental note and I say, I'm going to write that column. Well, you know, that's that's the interesting thing about you because I do find you um, entertainingly willing to at least talk about issues and to entertain the idea that you are not always on the, the conservative side of the spectrum. Um and at least to concede that, which a lot of journalists um, aren't even willing to uh, talk about the fact that, you know, they come into things with a certain mindset or a certain set of values. Sometimes you're at least willing to entertain the idea that, like every other human being, you have a certain set of values, a certain set of assumptions. And, you know, sometimes you're on one side of an issue. Sometimes you're on another side of the issue. And a lot of people just aren't willing to talk about things or argue about them. And I find you're always very willing to argue, which is fun. Well, that's the part of the job I like. I don't call it – I don't – I guess you could call it arguing or debating or, or, right. or what have you. I think of myself – you know, as a columnist, you have to have a, a persona. And it's not necessarily the same as the per, the person that you are. And that's not to say that my columns are disingenuous and that I don't believe in what I'm writing. Um, but sometimes you take a position in a column for the purpose of debate that is not – not often, but sometimes – that's not necessarily exactly precisely what you might argue at Thanksgiving you know, with Aunt Harriet. My Aunt Harriet, unfortunately, has died, but she was wonderful. And uh, So you really had an Aunt Harriet like Batman did. I did. Yeah. It wasn't the same one, though. Well, I'm relieved to hear it. And we, we were not poor, but we weren't, you know, Bruce Wayne rich. So. so you weren't living at Wayne Manor? We were not. No. Okay. No, we were living on, you know, Grayson Place in Teaneck, New Jersey, <laughs> which explains a lot of things. <laughs> it does indeed. Um, so, so that's interesting. Have you ever written a column that actually literally caused dissension at a family meal? Um, or is your family not actually reading your column? No, they read it. They're, we're, we're ideologically relatively similar. I'm trying to think of that. It's a great question. And I don't know that I have the answer. Um, certainly causing dissension in personal relationships. I, I, I would say absolutely that. Um, you know, for example, I wrote a column that said I'm a liberal 
flag waiver. Why should liberals give up the United States flag? Right. And the column started by saying uh, it was all these liberal shibboleths, you know, all this right. stuff, you know, free, ab- free abortion on demand, all the, f- the sort of far left that I believe in. Right. right. And then, you know, tax the rich, give to the, all this sort of liberal and fly the flag. So it was a long paragraph of that. And then it said, fly the flag. And I said, why? I, I object to the fact that the flag has become a symbol of the right because it's the United States flag. And I like it, too. I fly a flag in my house. I don't at the moment. I don't have one uh, at various times, depending on how I feel. I have one or I don't. But there was someone in my life who said, no, you're wrong. The flag is necessarily a nationalist symbol. And we on the left are not nationalists. We are globalists. And nationalism is the problem. And the flag is a symbol of what is wrong. That is what that person felt. And I respect that. I understand it. The flag has become a nationalist symbol. I nonetheless like the United States flag. Isn't the United States flag necessarily a symbol of the nation and thus inevitably nationalist? Right. That's why my friend who was further to the left than I am, farther, further to the left than I am, said, I don't like that column and I don't want you flying the flag. And what always confuses me is how can you not love your own nation? And if you don't, why are you here? Well, I don't tend to root for the U.S. in the Olympics unless it's somebody that I particularly care about. I've, I just Is the world a better place if the U.S. wins the bobsled or if Austria or, or the, if, is the world a better place because the U.S. exists, Dan? That's a too big. A, that's too big and, and broad a question. For, oh, you to, can't to you can't answer yes or no to that. That's horrifying. Is the world a better place because the U.S. exists? Yes. Yes, in terms of freedom and and expression and. Uh, 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 the ability of people to manifest their true selves, no in terms of consumption and violence. We're arming the world. So that's not a good thing. As opposed to China or Russia or, I mean, you can't unequivocally say the world is a better place because the U.S. exists and has existed. Life is layered. The world is a freer place. The United States, the, 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 the American experiment, the, the greatness of America that stems from, you know, the founding fathers. I guess there might have been a couple of founding mothers in there, but let it, we sort of call them the founding fathers. Oh, microaggression. No, no. Is that, is that a microaggression? But you caught yourself in time before I could take feminist umbrage. That's right. But so there you go. So, but anyway, all kidding aside, the thing that 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 came from, you know, presumably Enlightenment thinking that led to the practical application of John Locke and other people's Enlightenment thinking—that is, a free society that is permanently free with succession. Right. And just as an aside, that's one of the really big problems with the forty-fifth president. Uh, and his oh my gosh his understanding oh, oh my gosh his, his understanding of succession I knew in the we would not get through an entire no okay no. but in Re- any case let's get back to, to move on but let's get back to so the point is that 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 yes the point that that people should be free to pursue what the lives that they want to pursue in a free way that's the the, the heart of the American experiment and that is absolutely crucial and that makes the world a better place yes right if that's what you want to say that's that, that's and absolutely. I mean and that's sort of at the heart of what Yankee Institute works for of course when we talk about being free to succeed or empowering people to create a brighter future for themselves and their families I mean it's it's that whole aspirational idea whatever you want to be whatever you want to do you should be able to do it um, but we do have we we do have what is it what are we four percent of the world's population five 
at 300 and some 30 million and and we consume 25% of the world's resources and that's been a consistent number for a long time. So well, that's that not me, necessarily this a leads good me, thing. And and so explain to the people about your your water bottle issue. My water bottle issue? I've yes. got one in front of me and I'm really thirsty and I'm not going to open it because I didn't bring in my my water from the car which is in my you know, silver, canteen. my silver, I don't know what you call it, you know, the silver cup thing, right? I like and the so, image of the canteen, Dan. Dan no, Harris, think, Wild Westerner, do, but tell us. Do you not think it is objectionable that every time an American gets thirsty, a container gets wasted and that people drink water that's shipped? I'm looking at a bottle of Poland Spring Water, born in Maine. It says born in Maine, right? Now, I was told by a former co-chair of the legislature's environment committee, I have not confirmed the number, that Poland Spring alone is responsible for 40,000 trucks a year that go through Connecticut, presumably mostly on 84, between Massachusetts and New York because they're going to New York. I would 40, point out, they're, they're, but they're right? not paying tolls, Dan, and Yankee Institute is extremely proud and happy about that. Yeah, why would we not want to toll people that I just, are driving I through just our want state? To point it is beyond out, me. For once, the toll trolls did not win. Um, Even Florida conservatives I like just, tolls. Even Florida conservatives. You know what? You get rid of our income tax and we'll talk about tolls. The income tax did lower the capital so, gains tax. Do you know rich people in Greenwich? Remember Senator Nickerson, right? He understood this is going back <laughs> a few years when the income tax came in. He understood that the income tax was going to make it make taxable income total taxable income lower than it was previous to that. How has that worked out for our state, Dan? Have things gotten better or worse since 1991 when the income tax went in? That's like asking is America that's like asking is 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 the world a better place because of America. There are a lot of factors a lot of things have gotten a lot better in Connecticut since 91. Fiscally, things were not good in Connecticut for a long time until the present when we we finally seem to have gotten our our hands around fiscal management or we got lucky or We've relied on $6 billion in pandemic relief. But for whatever reason, we're okay now fiscally for the time being. And that, and so I would say that, that is Connecticut a better place since 91? It just depends who you are. I mean, in general, fiscally, we've been worse off. But I don't think it's because of the income tax. So you don't think the income tax had anything to do with making life more difficult here for people because you have a, a system in which um, – People who have high incomes have been tempted to leave the state for places where they don't have an income tax, where the the government has been tempted to continue to hike the income tax to make it a less hospitable place for people of means, and where you have had this temptation to use the money that has been brought in by the income tax to grow government rather than to take care of some legitimate needs rather than creating a gigantic bloated, well, to use a term and to change it slightly that I'm sure you were familiar with in the 60s, a gigantic government industrial complex, Dan? State employees per capita and per GDP. Per capita, we're middle of the pack. Per GDP, we're bottom end of the pack. Number of state employees per G per dollar of GDP. Connecticut is low. Connecticut is not now bloated in its government. Connecticut's not problem- Not in terms of the number of state employees, but in terms of what each state employee costs, Connecticut is near 
near the top, if not the top, in terms of, of benefits um, and total compensation of what our state employees If that's are. the case, why are, have two or three commissioners, including the commissioner of transportation, Joe Giletti, testified that they can't hire workers at the wages and working conditions that we have now, even though you and I might look and say, gee, those wages and working conditions are pretty good. Because some of the problem is not with the current tiers that exist, but with a lot of the promises that have been made in the past and that we are still on the hook for. That's exactly it. And so you, we, you and I will 100% agree that tier A was too rich on pension and health care, A. Tier A uh, is the pre-1984 give employees every possible thing you can think of, and then it got a little bit tighter after that. A, that is the case, and B, we didn't pay for it under a succession of Republican and Democratic governors. Right. This isn't, but but that's the point. I mean, a lot of the stuff isn't political. Right. A lot of the stuff is is a matter of um, of government doing what government does, which is to metastasize. And a lot of that, I mean, Lowell Weicker, the governor who pushed for the income tax, was. A Republican. That isn't what this is about. I mean, that's an interesting deflection. He wouldn't. I, he wouldn't say. By the time he ran, he wouldn't say he was a Republican. He would say he was. He was the founder of a Connecticut party along with uh, Lieutenant Governor Eunice Rourke. In in any case, I want to get back to an important point which you said about Connecticut being a better place because we can always d- debate the weeds of tax policy. But the big problem in Connecticut in the last thirty five years has been the suburbs and suburban life that we have here without big major hub cities fell out of favor, right? Oh, Dan, no. I mean, this is this narrative that, that you know, with – I say this with all due respect, that people like you want to spin. Um, people you know, like you? Yes. Is that a microaggression? Wait a minute. It's a huge – no, it's being, a macroaggression. I'm being, um, I mean, I'm being oppressed. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> let me tell you, I could do a lot better if I wanted to oppress you. Okay. Um, but, I mean, the point is – that no, that has nothing to do with it. There, there has have always been families, you know, or people who want to start families who are going to want to move if the conditions are right. The problem with Connecticut is that Connecticut decided that it could tax like New York without having the kind of cities that New York has. Connecticut gave away what its advantage was, and that was being a, a suburban state with an incredibly competitive tax climate. And it decided that we can tax as though we have major urban attractions without having Boston or New York City. Its attraction was that it had an incredibly competitive tax climate, and it gave that away. And so that's well, part why of that people was, stru- Part of that was Northeast cost-based structures that affected Connecticut in, in ways, and Connecticut Oh, come on, Needed Dan. and continues to need to provide service. Let's take DCF, for example. What is it, $1.1 billion? There's not, a, there's not a lot of ways you can not spend that money. Okay. Right? Well, I'll tell you, one way that you could do a lot better is by making sure you have fewer union rules that prevent you from getting rid of bad employees who aren't taking care of our children. And I would point you toward a whole series of stories that Mark Fitch has covered that show that you have DCF employees who do not do their jobs. And I mean, you know, I'm sure, and I mean, journalists across the state have covered these terribly sad stories of children who have been victimized by people who are supposed to care for them. Uh, 
without any sort of oversight or care from DCF. Yeah, that's a, those are important important stories that need to be told and important exceptions to the general rule that the 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 workforce of state employees are a not overpaid and b dedicated and hardworking. And of course there are going to be exceptions and we should write about those. Mark does a great job writing about People those exceptions. People should follow the a, a series of documents and blog posts on the Yankee Institute site talking about the series of raises. And the series, I mean, for example, this year, the governor is giving the state workforce a $3,500 raise on top of their longevity raises. It's not a raise. It's a bonus. It doesn't oh, go I'm into Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. I, I misspoke. Right. It's a raise. But may I ask you, Dan, yes. who in the private sector is getting just a, a raise, I mean, a bonus, a $3,500 bonus just, just for being there, completely unrelated the employment to, to, cost index, the overall cost of employment is rising almost as fast as inflation. Oh, I People understand. People are getting pay increases. The bottom line is that the state, it, it, because of binding arbitration, and in the next 20 seconds, we don't have time to go over all that binding right. arbitration means, but because we already saw the governor lost the ability to get people to come into the office. Right. right. And that I wrote. Right. That, you did. You right, wrote about it. Yes. We can't get people to work in the office because of arbitration. Right. But Had, that's a problem with these rules. And that's why we need fundamental reforms. You can't have a state where the entire private sector is working simply for the benefit of state employees. And you can't and the have difference a, right. between us is that I see this as a fundamental problem. And my friend, it doesn't seem like you do. There's plenty of money out there in Connecticut without being having to worry about state employees. There's, you don't want to be New York, but you also don't want to be South Carolina, Louisiana, and Georgia, where there is a, a, an absolute paucity of services, and they're not able to function with normal – not normal, with no, they have normal. They don't have schools that work correctly. They don't have anything that works. Look, I don't want to be that either. I'm just saying that you, you run into a situation – where you have an entire state population that ends up working for the benefit of the state workforce, and it's supposed to be the other way around. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to talk about sports. <laughs> I'm up for it if you are. Who who are you picking to win the entire March Madness? I picked UCLA to win, and they came darn near losing last night in in, in, the, in their opening game. Well, it uh, it they did pull it out. They had to score 15 to 4 uh, in the last four minutes, and they won. So... Uh, that's what I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm picking UCLA. Why I don't know because Kansas is the best team in the in the bunch. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of Why CT Matters, and um, your column is always a must read in our book. Even if you're often wrong, you never fail to be thought provoking. No, I appreciate it, and you better be careful because you know the the newspapers are going to hire your staff at higher wages than you well no wait a minute we don't have your kind of money never mind that's not a threat okay it's you know what I love here. it I love <laughs> it when you always try and end with uh, an inaccurate and cheap shot um, it's not a cheap shot but, we just uh, we don't have the kind of money that, that the private that the that the nonprofit sector has anymore well um you know what you would probably know more about that than I would all I know is that unlike the state every dollar that Yankee Institute gets we earn through um, the generous and voluntary gifts of the people who support what we are trying to do for our state and for the people of our state. Um, we believe in voluntary giving, not coercion. Yes. And 
I'm sure that's something we both can agree on. And uh, we do agree. And you're thriving in Connecticut because the economy here is a lot stronger than people make it out to be. And it's good that you're thriving and that other nonprofits are thriving. I hope that's why we're thriving. Another way of looking at it is we're thriving because people see the need for a lot of reform here. And I hope that you will join us in continuing to advocate for the reforms our state needs. Well, I probably won't agree with you on the reforms, but we'll, we'll definitely be advocating uh, for the same end result, which is a good quality of life. All right. Thanks for being with us, Dan. Thank you. I'll show you around this place I call home.